Welcome back to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, medievalist and general fan of old books, hence the name. I hadn't read much Flannery O'Connor before this episode. I must admit to being generally weak in 20th century literature outside of the Inklings and T.S. Eliot. But I read a bunch to get me up to speed before welcoming Dr. Jessica Houghton Wilson to the episode today. This conversation about O'Connor and the idea of diving into an unfinished work in progress um, was delightful. Jessica Houghton Wilson is the Fletcher Jones Endowed Chair of Great Books at Pepperdine University. She is the author of several books, most recently Reading for the Love of God and Why Do the Heathen Rage, a behind-the-scenes look at a work in progress. She is a senior fellow at the Trinity Forum. Books with Grace. Jessica, I'm so excited that you're back here to talk to us about Flannery O'Connor. Oh, thank you. I appreciate you having me back on. Oh, I'm thrilled. Um, I really enjoyed your new book. I really hope a lot of folks out there get it and read it. I think it's exciting, even for people like me who aren't uh, Flannery O'Connor diehard fans. I learned so much and it was a really enjoyable reading experience. So Mm. thank you. Good, good. So I'll ask two get-to-know-you questions. The first is, and you can't answer Flannery O'Connor for this, <laughs> even if it's the truth, you have to think of something else. Who or what is your favorite author or book from more than 50 years ago and why? So I'm not sure what I said last time, and I'm afraid <laughs> I might repeat myself because, it, of course, it would be my favorite. My The first thing that comes to mind is Sigurd Unset. And I don't know if I said that last time. I honestly but, don't remember either. Okay. <laughs> well, I probably said Kristen Lovren's daughter because that's what I'd read by Unset and in addition to her nonfiction. But right now I'm actually in the middle of the Master of Hestviken, so I can at least change the book because the tetralogy just got translated. One of the things I love is there was a Wall Street Journal article about her last summer, 2023, and it said the most famous woman novelist of the 20th century is not Virginia Woolf. Willa Cather or Edith Wharton. It's Sigrid Unset. And I thought, yes, this is what nobody knows. She is the most famous woman novelist that we forgot. And I don't know if it's because of her Christian faith and how explicit and strong it is in her work. And she does go back in time in order to make it strong, right? She has to have these settings in which Christ is assumed saints are assumed Mm. an enchanted and magical world is assumed Mm -hmm. so she does go back into that but i miss that world so much it's not that i have this kind of romantic nostalgia for you know the 15th century or anything crazy like that but it's just the the feel of the world that is not totally industrialized the magic isn't all gone um the idea that we can talk with such seriousness and also joy about our struggles with sin our desire for God and things that have just become too goody two shoes ish of topics and Mm. too into the ethical realm or the political realm instead of just being part of who we are and and how we're living in the world. And that's what Unset's fiction does for me. It returns me to that, that cosmos. Oh, that is such a wonderful answer. And I will admit that I had never read Unset until this last year, until 2023. So that was, uh, that's so funny that you mentioned that you know, she was the most popular, but yet she has been kind of mm-hmm. forgotten. And I'm so glad that it seems like people are kind of 
coming back to her and taking her seriously. I just think that's amazing. Yeah, hopefully there's a complete revival of Unset over the next five years. Oh, I mean, she's she's pretty astonishing. I I was uh, I was extremely into it while I was reading it and impressed mm. by her skill as a writer and as is thinking really seriously about yeah. humans. I mean, yeah. just human nature. It was pretty amazing. So mm-hmm. highly recommend if yes. listeners have not read yet. Um, okay. So then secondly, which literary character do you most identify with and why? Literary character. Um, let's go with Harriet Vane. <laughs> nice. Harriet Vane from Dorothy L. Sayers world. Maybe it's who I I would aspire to be. Someone who is able to speak her mind, who able to register and reflect on the way that she feels so clearly. Mm-hmm. That she was smart, you know, in a time when women are not supposed to be thinking creatures. <laughs> uh, you know, 1930s world. It's um, if you think too much, you're not going to get married. And yet she's just one of those people who doesn't misuse her powers of reason and imagination. Mm-hmm. You know, she's a mystery novelist, um, but she's not condescending and she's not um, a secular feminist. And in so many ways, she just maybe reminds me of what what I'd like to be or, or maybe who I imagine even Dorothy L. Sayers is herself. And, mm-hmm. and so I get along with her as a literary character. <laughs> I like that. You know, that would be a really funny question is who you get along with as a literary character. I never <laughs> yeah. thought about it in those terms before, but that would actually be a very revealing yeah. answer. I think who are your best people. friends? Yeah, yeah. Who are your who are your book friends? Who are your book bestie? <laughs> yeah, Harriet Vane is my book bestie. I like that. <laughs> I love that. That's great. So, okay, you have this very fascinating new book out that takes up an unfinished manuscript by another very, very famous woman, 20th century novelist, Flannery O'Connor. Why do the heathen rage? And you publish uh, her unfinished portions of it alongside some of your own commentary and historical context and meditations about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really enjoyed reading it. It was generically really interesting for me, which is always exciting as a student of genre, being super into English. I love things that do, um, you know, that think outside of the box a little bit on encountering these writers of the past. Um, But first, before we get into it, I want to start with the basics. Um, Mm -hmm. So who was Flannery O'Connor? Could you tell us a little bit about the trajectory of her life? Sure. I guess alongside Sigrid Unset, she's one of those women novelists that we forgot about. Mm-hmm. And she has kind of a cult following in the Christian and in the Catholic world. There was an article maybe a dozen years ago that Randy Boyagoda wrote where he like, I'm sick of Flannery O'Connor, right? Because everyone, <laughs> if they think of a Catholic writer, they think of Flannery O'Connor. And so she does have that following. But if you go, you know, just to a supermarket and say, like, who's Flannery O'Connor? No one has any idea. So mm-hmm. unless you're in the Catholic literati, you can't be sick of Flannery because no one else knows her. <laughs> but at the time that she was writing between the 1950s and, and 60s, she died in 1964. She was popular. Evelyn mm-hmm. Waugh thought her work was astonishing if it really was written by a woman, which he says. Is kind oh, of a no. Backhanded compliment. Um 
that people were reading her. They were dialoguing with her. You know, Walker Percy was an avid fan of hers. And so she was just one of those writers that was kind of taking the world by storm and people recognize as a canonical author. You know, she has a stamp made of her for <laughs> America. So, yeah. um, and yet she kind of lost popularity. She only published a few things. Most of what we have of her is published after she died because she died so young and she died of lupus at 39. Mm. So we have a lot of posthumous material. So most of the making of Flannery O'Connor has been um, after 1964. So everything rises must converge is a short story collection that came out, her letters, her essays, her prayers. And now this, it's just all posthumous material where we've just been trying to get more of her because she only produced so much within her 14 years of writing. Yeah. It's always kind of horrible and shocking uh, how many of those really talented, great writers died young. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I think of Jane Austen. Yeah. Uh, I think of, you know, and a lot of women uh, mm-hmm. in particular, which is just strange and interesting. I have no more further comment on that, except <laughs> just to say it's weird how often that happens and interesting for reception of their work. Yeah. Um, as we figure out, as we disentangle sort of the yes. myth of Flannery O'Connor from the person mm-hmm. of Flannery O'Connor in her life, which you do quite a bit of that in this book. Um, so she was a, a very Southern writer. That was what she was known for, right? And so mm-hmm. a lot of her, uh, she gets pigeonholed in interesting ways because of that. Yeah. At the time that she's writing, we don't think in these terms probably as much now. People don't talk about Southern writers versus Northern writers. But at the time, the worlds were very different because the North after the Civil War was, I mean, this is 50 years or so after the Civil War. Like this is not... You know, her parents' generation, um, they lived with stories of the Civil War. It's Mm -hmm. so hard for us to remember how close that history Mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. But she had grandparents who, her teachers fought in the Civil War, Flannery's. And so they're teaching her about this war that is very close to them. So they remember slavery, Mm -hmm. which is just astounding. You know, one of the other figures I work on is Anna Julia Cooper, who died in 1964, she was a slave. She was born a slave and she died mm. the same year as Flannery. Mm-hmm. Like if we can just kind of parallel that for a second, I think it's important to remember. So Southern writers have this ghost of the Civil War hanging over them and actually still dictating their manners and behaviors and ways of being in the world. So when we talk about Flannery being a Southerner, she's living in a world that's segregated, unlike mm-hmm. a lot of other places in America, but like very segregated in the South. Um, You didn't have friends. You didn't have close companions across race lines. Um, You know, during Flannery's life, you didn't write the same transportation. You know, that changed during her lifetime. So she's living in a segregated world. She's also living in a world of ghost stories, if I can put it that way. Mm. Um, People write about those ghosts. You know, you think Toni Morrison, beloved. Yes. And the ways the ghosts haunt that world. And Uh, especially these legacies and these ancestors and these stories. And so Truman Capote, Carson McCullers, these Southern writers that are constantly talking about um, the ghosts and the freaks and the grotesques and the weirdness of transition that they're all kind of going through. In a sense, the Southern world is one in which um, you don't have industrialization, but you have it coming. Yeah. You know, Walker first would talk about Los Angelesization. 
that's happening to, <laughs> to the South, but the South was its own world for so long. And so when we talk about Flannery as a Southern writer, uh, we had to, we have to get back to that. We have to figure out what that means and what that looks like. Cause it's so different than our own time. That's right. And it reminds me so much of another, what another Southern writer said very famously, William Faulkner, the past mm. is never past. And that feels very, right. very true yes. in the work. So even though she's not like writing historical fiction necessarily or whatever, but this haunting, this presence that mm-hmm. is not to be easily just cast aside or dispelled, yes. but is, you know, having to be reckoned with in a mm-hmm. serious way. Um that is very true for her work. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a great quote to bring up. Um, so you have loved Flannery O'Connor for a long time and been uh, a, a fan of her writing uh, since you were quite young. I really love the story you tell in your book of your first encounter with Flannery O'Connor. Could you share it with us here? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in the church I was um, from like a restoration movement, Church of Christ, uh, very Protestant. So Christ has come down from the cross <laughs> and <laughs> we focus a lot on resurrection and the light and the sun and the brightness and the happiness and the joy that is like post-resurrection. You don't focus on Good Friday. You don't focus on the crucifixion. Mm. And so when I was writing stories, I'm writing all these dark stories that seem to fit more of a church in the shadow of the crucifixion. And my dad was completely uncomfortable with it. He doesn't mind me telling this story. So he wanted me to to baptize my work in a sense and make it um, these kind of stories that were hopeful. And what's funny is I look back now and his example was Lord of the Rings. But you can think about it. That's like Which is like all about how Frodo is getting wounds that will never be healed until like basically after. I, I just read them over Christmas. Okay. So it's very fresh in my mind. <laughs> it's very Catholic. It's very much like the crucifixion precedes the resurrection. But yes. at the time, that's not what I was thinking. I just heard that part of like, focus on the good, focus on the happy. So I started writing different versions of stories and my stories um, were very sunny <laughs> and... <laughs> Um, as one professor at Rhodes College put it, he said, like, PBS sitcoms. I mean, they were just, you know, they had a moral and they ended well and everybody was um, full of joy and nobody was mean or bad or anything. And so he's asking, you know, why is someone writing this way? And I explained my story to him. And he said, oh, if you're a Christian, here's Flannery O'Connor. And I read the story, The Life You Saved, maybe your own. I thought, who is this guy? He's really good. <laughs> um, you know, and Flannery, of course, did that on purpose. Her name was Mary Flannery. She knew the preconceptions people would have. And so she changed her name to Flannery, but she was really good. She was able to get into the darkness and grit in a way that I had never seen before. So mm-hmm. I imitated that story in particular as I was learning to write at 15 years old. And I won this national short story contest. They flew me to DC, you know, Hillary Clinton gave out the awards at the Kennedy <laughs> center. It was like this amazing, really big deal. And it just felt like the the secret to life. This is it. And so I started, <laughs> I started studying Flannery very young um, without a teacher and just read everything by her and, and come to find out she was actually from where my parents were from. So my mm. parents were from Warner Robins, which is really close to Milledgeville. Mm. So, and that's where my grandparents still were. That's where my aunts were, still were. Mm. So it was one of those things where it's like, once I discovered her, I also, that's where my roots are. That's yes. where my world is. Um, My mom has a Georgia accent. You know, like I just grew up not realizing how closely connected I was to Flannery. And then once I discovered it, I'm like, this feels so familiar. This feels mm-hmm. so true. It's like, 
I could write in my own voice by imitating her because I knew that world and I knew that voice. Mm. I, I, I always, it's so interesting when you discover authors who have that same heritage, like that same Mm -hmm. background. Mm -hmm. It's a weird feeling because you're like, oh, I, this is kind of normal because you actually did live a normal life. Like we tend to valorize (laughs) or demonize, right? The Mm -hmm. people who are really famous, who are really successful. And when you kind of have these weird common roots, you're, you you all of a sudden can't really do that anymore. And you're like, okay, taking you, this is a different kind of seriousness. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's really interesting. So, okay, you you touch on this, but I'd love to hear you talk about it more. Why do we as Christians really need the darkness mm. of O'Connor and of her short stories? So her short stories and her novels, um, there's like so much murder. There's mm-hmm. so much um, horrible things right. happening. Why is that actually important for us to have in the stories that we tell? Yeah. Not obviously yeah. not necessarily in all of them, but to to give them their space. Mm-hmm. It's, it's such a good question. It was one of those questions that I I didn't ask at fifteen because I assumed the answer, and then as I had to reflect on it and really give a justification why, I realized the opposite is actually the more perplexing question. Why would you have a story that didn't have any darkness? It, so if you're writing about the world as it is, everyone knows that there is darkness. Mm-hmm. It's the reality of of the world that we live in. To write mm-hmm. about a world that doesn't have darkness is to write about Eden. It's to paint like Thomas Kincaid. Mm-hmm. It's to have a world in which like you don't have sin. You don't mm-hmm. have trouble. And instead, the Christian view is take heart. You know, um, you will have trouble in this life, but I have overcome the world. Mm-hmm. And that's what Jesus tells us. And so we have a world in which there's this paradox of, the darkness is here. We invited it in through the fall of Adam and Eve. You know, like if you go back to like the first human creatures, we invited the fall in. We live in a fallen state. We recognize our own sinfulness. Anyone who looks in the mirror knows that there's darkness. Mm. And so the darkness begins in the human heart. And it's something that we are constantly playing with and inviting. Um, but if we invite it in and if we play with it, it can kind of take us over. And what Flannery's work does is it shows us that it's there. It gives us a more accurate reading of where it is. And Mm -hmm. then she's trying to exercise those demons, right? Mm -hmm. She always says things like, um, I want to show readers the the devil that possesses them. Mm -hmm. It's a small goal, but maybe a necessary one, right? She writes that in an essay. So it's this idea that like the devils that plague us, the darkness that's within us, She's going to reveal to us so that we can cast them out. So, mm-hmm. you know, by the grace of God, they can be cast out of us. Yes. And I, I think that if you don't recognize that darkness, you'll never cast out the demons. I mean, they will come to replace you and you will think that they are good. I mean, that's that's the lies and the deception that are the risk by not facing the darkness and the demons. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, too, as I'm listening to you talk, I'm thinking about how Tempting it is for us to see darkness only in the things that we don't like um, and how the best fiction hold does that mirror holding where you have to reckon with it in yourself and it can't be something outer. It can't be something distant. It actually is right here, right now. And you are being asked to take it seriously in your own setting with the, your own people, with your own loves and mm-hmm. desires. And so yeah. um, 
Yeah. I think that's something really serious in, yeah, in her I, work. I think this is actually when people ask about why we should read O'Connor to me, this is the prime thing that she does so well is I've taught her for so many years and I have students with the hardest of hearts. Me too. I mean, me too. Every time I read her, her fiction. So I'm not just casting students, but <laughs> I get to watch a first time reader yeah, yeah. with a student. And so they come in with a hard heart and she just holds up this mirror. She holds up this reflection and they see things in themselves they've never seen before. Mm. And they realize the problem is not just out there. The problem begins in here. And every single one of her stories does that. She always said that um, she takes her her characters to the point of self-knowledge. Mm. And for her, in order to get to the point of self-knowledge, she says you have to realize that the truth is out there and we judge ourselves against it, not the other way around. Mm. And that very lesson is what she often takes her characters through so that they can get to a point of conversion. Not all of them get to conversion, but they get to that point of self-knowledge. And they can either say, yes, the truth is out there and I'm beneath it. Or they end up not being saved and the truth is beneath them and they mm. judge it. Mm. And it's, it's those are the moments that she takes her characters to. But I, I feel like that's that's the strength of her work. That's the reason I, I can't ever get enough of her. Mm. You put that so interestingly. And I, I appreciate that idea of are you judging the truth or is it judging you? There's that element of judgment that it's so easy to just kind of either not want to deal with at all because it is admittedly judgment. I had to write about it in my last book. It was a very <laughs> difficult chapter for me to write. Uh, it's a very difficult thing to talk about and and we are not the final judge. And so mm-hmm. that makes it complicated and interesting for us, but that we are actually receiving this uh, very uh, truthful and actually importantly beautiful judgment of, of reality um, in our own yes, hearts. Yes. And I think it's not always beautiful in, in Flannery O'Connor's stories, but she has that strong hold on, on um, that there is, none of this would be so bad if we weren't so keenly aware of its ugliness and how yes, it's falling yes. short, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she says at one point, um, she's quoting Wyndham Lewis, which don't ask me who that is. <laughs> I have no idea. I'm sorry. I'm showing my ignorance as a literature <laughs> professor, but I don't know who that is. Um, but she quotes him and she says, you know, the mistake is when you write about the rot in the hill, people think you love the rot. Mm. And she's like, no, the answer is you love the hill. Mm. So you mm-hmm. write about the darkness, not because you love the darkness, but because you love the light. Mm. You've got to expose the darkness for what it is. Mm-hmm. And that's what a good writer does is, is not afraid to face the darkness. I mean, I, I'm sure you're going to get to questions on race, but this is the issue with Flannery. People look at her and say that was a darkness that plagued her own heart is her mm-hmm. inability um, during the time that she lived, very short time that she lived, to be able to understand African-Americans around her, mm-hmm. to be able to see neighbors and mm-hmm. see friends. She could get there cognitively, and yet she acknowledged the own darkness in her own heart that she mm-hmm. wasn't getting there emotionally in an embodied way. Mm-hmm like she would have wanted to. And I think that being able to see that darkness is important. If she would have saw it as light, I don't, I wouldn't be reading her and writing and writing about her. Hmm. Right. That's um, a great point. Yeah. yeah. There's a difference. I, there is a difference and, and it doesn't deny the existence of the, of the unknowing and of the, in some ways, refusal to know, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Um, let's jump. Actually, I was going to ask you about that and I'll jump to that. 
um, in her nonfiction, she writes about the importance of seeing and of mm-hmm. uh, being able to describe reality in a serious way all the time. Um, it's one of her biggest concerns as a writer. And in in your book, you grapple at length with what she fails to see, which is uh, these issues, particularly around race as a Southerner living mostly untroubled in segregation. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so this relates to a much bigger question that all of us who are reading historical, reading and writing about historical writers yeah. struggle with, which is, okay, you know, every historical era has these massive blind spots, mm-hmm. massive flaws. I work as a medievalist. I see loads of anti-Semitism. Um, so, uh, you know, this is a problem shared across Uh, reading Mm -hmm. the past generally, but with Flannery. How should we read this unseeing without succumbing to pious cliche or Mm self-righteousness or worse, ignoring and Mm -hmm. making excuses? Absolutely. I think that's so key to not make excuses any more so than you would about your own self. Mm. So I think anyone who's going to read Flannery accurately has to start with that self-knowledge we've been talking about. And this, this becomes a problem when you say, reading the past is full of problems because of anti-Semitism. Well, reading your own heart and not finding your own blindness. Yes. And you have to know that, I mean, just the, the logic of it is when you look at yourself, you cannot see all of your problems. Yes. You wish you could, and then you'd fix them all, but you can't. <laughs> and that's, that's just the truth. There's so many things that if somebody else looked at us, if God looks at us, He knows where we're broken. He knows where all of our faults are and he can repair them. But none of us are God. Mm -hmm. So when we see ourselves, we in in sense have to have this generosity and charity that has to be careful to tread and not point fingers outside of ourselves that we wouldn't want to point back at us. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. So when we look at at figures from the, the past, I was thinking of Christine de Bazan. I'm working on women right now and you know, she writes about like, if you're getting abused, just, you know, take it. <laughs> just, right. Which right, was the, totally it. the medieval, well, I mean, the not just medieval, the philosophy yeah. on on abuse toward directed towards women for yes. a very long time. And and still that some people have a, that heavy burden to this day. Of, yes. So that's a serious problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. And so if you... If you want to throw out Christine de Bazan and all the amazing things that she does say about women that are accurate because of the some of the things that because of her own time period she couldn't see correctly, mm-hmm. we're going to miss the genius. I mean, if we're all in process, then if we look all at history as this process, we can see how there's moments in, in which there were blindnesses and there was pure and clear vision. And we have to be able to extract the good from the bad. We have to, in some sense be able to go back in time and say, yes, that was good. Let's hold on to it. The rest was being refined, but we're mm-hmm. not going to ignore the gold just because of all the dross. It's mm-hmm. going to be burned off. It's going to be burned away. And we're going to be able to take this with us. And we have to be able to do that to ourselves. We have to be able mm-hmm. to do that with writers that we love. Um, to not do that, you lose everything that's come before. And and you have this arrogance about what's happening now. I mean, that, that's also... there. It's a both and. It, you end up losing all the the wealth of wisdom that came before you, but also in your own time, you don't even see your own blindness because you you don't know it's there. You refuse mm-hmm. to admit that it's there. Mm-hmm. You only have this chronological snobbery that says, "Thank goodness I'm not like the people that came before." Um, mm-hmm. But of course, that's what the tax collector 
uh, doesn't do and the Pharisee does. So we just don't want to see like Pharisees. We want to be able, I'm starting to preach, but we want to be able to see like the tax collector and admit our own sins and and not say like the Pharisee. Thank goodness I'm not like that person. Yeah, I I think there's such gifts in reading with this sort of confessional tension, right? Mm-hmm. Where you are, you have to notice, you have to pay attention to those things like in, in you know, Connor's work, race, where you're, you're that makes you uncomfortable and you, mm-hmm. you you must learn to be uncomfortable with it and hold yeah. it right yeah. um and i think that's true with all of those cases where we get into trouble when we're either uh not reckoning with the past at all and the the ways that they have shaped us mm-hmm. for good and for ill or if we are um just excusing oh she's a woman of her time it doesn't matter it oh does yeah matter, right. you know yeah, so it does. um absolutely Okay, so let's talk, though, about why do the heathen rage. Um, what did your writing and research process look like with working with an unfinished piece? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's a much longer process than any of my books have been. And this is – so um, if anybody on your podcast knows me, they know me from more popular books over the last five years. But when I was starting my career as an academic, and that's when I was working on this originally, I was writing – very academic books. And so I was doing a lot of research and I was in archives and um, you protect the text and you have kind of this textual uh, distance and this critical eye that you put on. And so when I first started with Flannery, I worked with her along those lines. I protected the material. I documented everything. I put together kind of, you know, I read a lot on textual criticism Mm -hmm. and like how to put the text together in a scholarly way. And then it just started morphing. Um, The more that I worked with the estate at that time and making sure it got out in the right way that we published it in a way that was accessible to people and that they would love. The more that I started seeing, okay, this textual preservation is not necessarily the only story. How Mm -hmm. can, for instance, I had a student who purchased my book yesterday in class, like, which I don't, (laughs) I don't just like sell books (laughs) in class. He had asked me like multiple times and finally was like, and I gave it to him for like 10 bucks or something. Okay. So don't, don't think I'm just like making money off my students, but (laughs) but he asked me, he's like, you know, if I start reading this book, like, and it's unfinished, am I going to be able to understand what's going on? Mm. And the earlier academic version I come up with, no, you wouldn't be able to, Mm -hmm. because you wouldn't have had any idea what was happening. So what I tried to do instead was tell the story of the material, Mm. the lessons I learned in putting it together bringing it to view in such a way that says like, let's have a conversation about this. Let's um, engage Flannery, engage one another. You know, I kind of changed the way that I approached the unfinished pieces. And a large part of that, I have to give huge credit to one of my endorsers because he and I had discussed the book, I don't know, 2015 or 16 or something like that. Um, Harrison Scott Key. Mm. And if you haven't read Harrison Scott Key, everyone needs to go I just read his his divorce book. (laughs) It was very, very good. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. So I I love Harrison Scott Key. And so he and I have been talking about this material. And he was the one that gave me this idea. Really, you need the whole story is going to be starting with you and then moving out to your reader. Mm. That's how the story needs to get published. And so that's kind of the, the way the project moved over the last 14 years is just very slowly. (laughs) with uh, a move from academic engagement to more personal engagement to more audience focus over mm-hmm. over the last decade and a half. That's so interesting. And I think uh, 
also speaks to something about reading Flannery O'Connor that I really appreciate. I think it matches her demand on Mm. the reader. She has this, uh, her fiction resists my temptation to read as a consumer, basically, uh, to just swallow things whole without digesting them or letting them change me in any way, which is sometimes, sorry, academia, I love you. I'm not (laughs) slamming on you, but sometimes how in academia we're we're taught to read, right? Where don't let it like, you know, keep the text separate from your Mm -hmm. heart in certain Mm -hmm. ways. Mm -hmm. Um, O'Connor resists that as many, many great writers do. Um, And you describe this in terms of wondering, which I thought was a great idea um, to let your story begin where hers has left off. And and it seems to me that this process might even be turned up for something unfinished. So Mm -hmm. did confronting and wondering about why do the heathen rage change you as you worked on it? Yeah, I'm going to answer that with three different things. And my my husband always... (laughs) In conversation, he's like, why do you talk around everything? Like, just say it. he's an engineer. And I'm like, my my husband's an engineer, too. Same. Okay. <laughs> he's always like, that was a really long explanation for yes or no. And I'm like, well, you have to have the context. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to do that. I'm going to do the whole, like, give you the context. Great. But I promise it's all good and it all relates. So years ago, I gave a talk at a well-read mom's conference. They had just read Violent Barrett Away, and I was explaining her process and explaining how she digs down under things and the sacramental vision and blah, blah. And afterwards was like, but why doesn't she just say it explicitly? Mm-hmm. <laughs> why do we have to read her, not understand her, and then be forced to read her again to actually understand her? <laughs> and I was like, because she's teaching you how to read. Mm-hmm. She is not letting you just consume her. Mm-hmm. She's making you wrestle with her. She is in some ways imitating God and the angel wrestling with Jacob. Mm-hmm. She is imitating how you're supposed to read with scripture. She's giving you this practice that moves you away from becoming a consumer to being someone who actually engages with the text the way you should engage with a person, mm-hmm. right? By having this kind of dialogue and questioning and more of a process, mm-hmm. right? And in that sense, I think she's helping us realize the virtue of humility that can come with reading and also should precede reading, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of a paradox, reciprocal paradox there. But the second part is the wonder and certainty. So when you have humility, right, you're able to wonder. Mm-hmm. When you have arrogance towards a text, you have certainty about what it means yes. and what you want it to say. And you're the kind of like Harold Bloomian strong reader that makes you insane what you want it to say, right? Yes, yes. And instead, um, I was reading this book by Gary Saul Morrison last year called Wonder Versus Certainty, Mm. which is about Russian writers and the difference between the Russian and the Soviet writer. And Mm. the Russian writer, which Flannery was heavily influenced by Russian writers. I've made that argument elsewhere. You know, Dostoevsky is kind of her model. Um, The right kind of Russian writer is the one that questions, big questions, enduring questions, and doesn't necessarily give you, you know, one plus one equals two, but gives you something that keeps you in the state of mystery, which again, protects that humility. So as I was reading Flannery, having kind of learned these lessons from her fiction itself, in a lot of ways, Flannery taught me how to read, as I said, Um, she taught me the value of humility and the necessity of practicing it Mm. through wonder. 
so when I got to these, these materials and I wasn't able to answer and I wasn't able to finish the story exactly how she would have wanted it finished. Cause I have no idea, <laughs> you know, it kept me in that place. And I thought, well, this is what she's always done. This is what she's always shown me how to do. And having that revelation towards this unfinished material that was very in keeping with the revelations and epiphanies I'd experienced in reading her published, finished material, I thought, okay, then this is worth doing. This is worth putting out there because it's telling the full story of Flannery and it's consistent in that sense with what she left behind, even if aesthetically or by merit, literary merit, it's not in keeping with her published works. Hmm. Yes, I that would make sense. And, and what a lovely discovery to realize that the same work is being done in your heart of continuing to go deeper into the invitation of mystery, into the invitation of, of littleness and of response, rather than deeper into control, which I'd mm-hmm. imagine is a pretty big temptation as you edit an unfinished yeah. manuscript. I mean, it's yeah. a temptation in in my own writing um, of wanting to control ev- the reader's every possible response to something mm-hmm. instead of letting people respond, which is really yeah. scary. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's a, I mean, it's the same thing that I think faces teachers is you so much want to give the answer. Yes. You know, you want to tell them what's true or false about Dostoevsky and if I don't let them discover it, they're not going to ever learn it. I, you know, I, I tell this to students all the time. I had students recently write essays and they were like, well, what if we, what if we mess up and fail? And I said, that's awesome. <laughs> that's fantastic. Because if you fail and then you move through the process of revising from my feedback, from, from your point of failure to a conversation in which you eventually understand, it will stick with you. If you're the kind of student that at the very beginning can write this masterful essay, like what have you learned and what are you going to hold on to? Absolutely nothing. So in in a sense, I feel like Flannery is always teaching us because she allows us to wrestle and fail and fall. I mean, her characters are full of that, like the fall, the descent in order that we might rise up again, right? She doesn't leave us there, but she allows us to be scandalized. She allows us to fall first. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So how does Why Do the Heathen Rage fit in with her other completed works? And you kind of touch on that a little bit, but uh, in your last answer, but could Mm -hmm. you tell us more? Yeah, I think there's two two different ways that I've kind of honed in on. And maybe I'm sure there's many more and people will have more to say now, you know, after they read the book. But the ones that stood out to me is one, she was trying to have the moment of grace or the conversion happen at the beginning of the story, Mm. which means it would have been a a completely different novel than her other works. You know, if we look just at the novels, for examples, uh, Wise Blood, the character moves from blasphemy, right, to becoming an ascetic holy fool. Mm -hmm. In Violent Barrett Away, the the character moves from uh, falling for the temptation of the devil to becoming a prophet of God. So you have this move from sin into holiness that in this fiction, she wanted to start with, okay, a sinful character who accepts the invitation to grace at the beginning of the book. How do we show a holy life? Well, that would have been more like Dostoevsky's The Idiot or more like Mm -hmm. Alyosha and the Brothers Karamazov. And that's a completely different work of fiction than the other works that she had written. So we could have had that to look forward to. I'm not sure. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The second is a potential love relationship. So if you look at something like Parker's back, 
which she mined the material from Why Did the Heathen Rage from a character named Gunnels in Why Did the Heathen Rage to become Parker Mm -hmm. in Parker's Back. And you have Sarah who, in again, in Why Did the Heathen Rage, the character Una is sometimes called Sarah. So we have these two figures that come from the Why Did the Heathen Rage material and become a married couple in Parker's Back. And she has a love relationship that's at the center of that work. You know, and it takes on allegorical significance between Old Testament, New Testament, blah, blah, blah. But it has its own thing. But it, mm-hmm. it does start with a love relationship. And if you look at the rest of her stories, they they don't really have that. You have an occasional seductress, like, um, you know, when Thomas is maybe seduced by Star. Or um, you have Wise Blood, where he, like, goes to a brothel one time. But you just don't really have this kind of magnetism between male and female and what the love relationship could do. And I think she was going that direction. Mm. Um, I said two, and then if I if I said a third, it would be the race question. And the way that she was handling race was very in line with what she does with Revelation, which she writes during this, mm. um, and what she does with Everything Rises Must Converge, again, while she was writing, like, during this, writing this novel. So she was ta- tackling those issues um, that were in her current society more than she had in her previous work. Mm. And I, th- I think this novel was going to go even deeper than she had previously um, when it comes to to how to love your neighbor. Mm. Oh, great. So. Um, well, okay, before I know that we're coming close on time, before we end, um, could you tell people where to find you if they're curious, where to find you online, where to see more of what you're up to, your work, mm. all that good stuff? Yeah, sure. Um I was I was telling Grace earlier, like before we started recording, this work to me is like, where do you find more Flannery? So <laughs> yes, you can follow me. Um, I try to be a Twitter teacher. <laughs> so mm-hmm. Twitter is like hopefully my syllabus for what I think people should read and engage in. Um, conversations should be listened to. So I'm at Hooten Wilson. I also have a website that says like where I'm going to be teaching in different areas. And of course, I'm teaching full time at Pepperdine. So it's a great place if you're interested in sending your students and you're interested in great books and you're interested in Christian faith and how it relates to education. So great university. So those are the places to find me. Um, But if you want to find more Flannery, I recommend you get the complete works from the Library of America because it has her letters. It has her essays. Um, Word on Fire also put out a cool collection in which pieces of the letters engage with the short stories. And Bishop Barron has an introduction to that. Um, so that would be another place that I think if you're going to go search out Flannery, you should do that. Um, there's also a PBS film that could be a good introduction just called Flannery, right? Um, and that's by Mark Bosco and Elizabeth Kaufman. Yeah, those are good starting points. And I can't believe I to- I was going to ask you and then I totally forgot if you had thoughts about the upcoming Flannery O'Connor oh, yeah. like motion picture <laughs> film that's coming out, yeah. um, which seems to be making waves already, which I'm very intrigued by. Yeah, have, I guess I haven't gotten to read the script. I, I'm, you know, I'm holding back my envy of all the people who've already been able to see it because I'm just, um, I haven't been somewhere where I've been able to watch the film. Um, I know that Ethan Hawke has Why the Heathen Rage. He has my book. Um, he said he's ready to dive into it. So. Lord willing, that produces a a further conversation in which we get to, you know, how did he handle it creatively in the film, dealing with her her life as mm. kind of this unfinished story, and and how did my book deal with her actual unfinished material? So, mm. um, so I hope it leads to a greater conversation. I think also twenty twenty five is her hundredth year 
it's her centennial, it's her birth anniversary. And, um, and so I'm also trying to get more people to pay attention to Flannery in that sense. Um, cause there's some, there's so much to celebrate and, and great courses. I don't know if anybody follows great courses through Wondrium. They really should, but I'm doing a great courses on Flannery that'll just be available via audible. So you can have like six little lectures on Flannery O'Connor. So I think there's a lot like films, documentary, <laughs> her short stories themselves, my book, uh, great courses. There's just a lot out there on Flannery that could take people a while, but um, all of it would be worth it. Absolutely. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing your love of Flannery O'Connor with us and talking about your new book. Uh, I hope a ton of people read it and start thinking and enjoying. And so thank you for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. Thanks again for listening to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond. You can find me online at Instagram at Old Books with Grace or on Twitter at Grace Hammond PhD. I also have a Substack called Medievalish with Grace Hammond that once a month uh, comes out with some meditations and thoughts on literature of the past. You can also read my brand new book, Jesus Through Medieval Eyes, out with Zondervan Reflective. I'd love to hear from you. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to leave a rating or review on the podcasting platform of your choice. It helps other listeners to find old books with grace, and I deeply appreciate it. Thanks again for listening. 